Hello, everyone. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that Olivia is taking a little break from the podcast. So for the foreseeable future, it will either be me flying solo or chilling with some new friends. Hello, I'm Jay, and this is Highbrow Theater, a podcast where we analyze plays so you don't have to. Today is a little different because we are going to be analyzing a musical, Les Miserables, that is. Another part of the discussion is going to be about Taylor Swift. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) These two topics are more connected than you think. Today's guests love musicals and are Swifties to the core. Those two lovely people are Mary Maxwell and Michelle Holder. Hello, guys. It's so great to have you here. What have you guys been up to? I know that's a dumb question because all of us have been doing nothing, but I guess how have you been biding your time? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a full-time student and I've sold my soul to academia and uh, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of music. <laughs> Very sober one. (laughs) I am. I am. I'm so sorry, everybody. I am the sober one, and I am. I have such a dull life at the moment. I do apologize. I am substitute teaching though, so if you want some like really entertaining elementary or high school student stories, I have them. Unfortunately. Well, Mary, didn't you just finish working on a production? Because my friend was it. Yes, I did. I uh, yes. (laughs) What was it a production of? It was uh, Collective Rage, a play in Five Bettys. I know the title of the play is actually so much longer than that, but I cannot remember it for the life of me. Um, It is probably the raunchiest show I've ever worked on. And, like, I had to beg my family not to go watch it. um, Because I was like, like, because within the first ten minutes, like... They swore more in the first 10 minutes of the show than I have, I think, around both of you combined. And I was like, (laughs) if my parents hear any of this, I am so screwed. Like, it's just so awkward. It was a great show, though. I would have loved to have seen your parents' reaction. That's true. It would have been entertaining. There's a chance that, like, my dad will definitely listen to this podcast and he'll be like, (laughs) Mary, I missed out. Like, no, you really didn't. It was great, though. It was my first, like, all-female production team show um and then it kind of expanded where we added um once we made it a bigger deal than we expected it became an all hands on deck type of sitch but i had like a female director whole all female cast i was the sole stage manager um it was very it was a very fun it was very fun time yeah i don't think i'm ever going to be able to have that experience again unfortunately how about you meme oh my god (laughs) literally nothing um i'm only working right now so i just i go to work every day i come home and I sit here and I watch anime that's about it I'm kind of in hell right now I can't stop (laughs) (laughs) for our anime contingency tune in (laughs) I was like I I could not literally help it all in that regard but you hey you worked wasn't Biden right next to you today yeah I thought (laughs) my managers told me that I walked in today and they were like okay let us know if this like anyone says anything about the streets being closed um, and I was like, why? And they were like, oh, well, because the president's going to be at the WEX today. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, I thought they were, like, joshing me, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. 
Literally, I was driving into Colum- so I had to commute to Columbus for class today, and you know you hit 670 and it's like there's an overpass every half mile, and it the overpasses were full of cops, and I was that like, was my roommate was what doing- the heck? And it just kept going and going and going. I'm like, what on earth is happening? I hit 315. There were three helicopters, and I was and you know, you know America. My first like thought was, oh dear God. There had to have been a shooting, and I don't know about it yet. And I was freaking out because I was going to going to OSU, and I called my mom. It's so valid. And I called my mom. I was like, "What? What was happening?" And she was like, "Oh, you didn't. You uh, guess Biden's gonna be there." And I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, that's cool." (laughs) (laughs) Except for the fact I was almost late to class, and then like typical theater major thing. So like for context, the theater department is right by Ohio Stadium, which is like. I love the antithesis of that so much. And I walk out and around Ohio Stadium were just snipers. And then I clearly walked out right when he was landing in his helicopter at OSU. And I was like, I am a lowly theater major. I am, <laughs> I, I am no threat to you whatsoever. Yeah. All right. Let us move into the main meat of this, which is musicals, specifically this chunk is about Les Miserables. So, yes, exactly. <laughs> so I was hoping that we could talk about why you guys are so drawn to musicals and what kind of speaks to you about them. Mary, would you like to start? Yeah, um, I I kind of have this weird thing where I was raised on musicals, but I don't think it was an intent. I don't think it was by intention. Um my dad was really into musicals, uh, specifically Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, that whole ordeal. I also was really into Disney. And like when we were growing up during the Disney Renaissance, everything was a musical. Um, and then when I started getting into theater, I got into theater because of working on a musical. I was in the pit. That was the first thing I ever did. I just really love music. So from a stage manager perspective, musicals are really nice because I have that additional skill of being able to read music and it had like a whole other layer of understanding what's happening in the show technically and artistically. Um, and as an audience member, like there's nothing better than like an act one closer that you can just oh. feel in your chest and you're like, oh, this is why I paid $180. It makes <laughs> me feel powerful. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mary, what do you play? Nowadays it's a piano and it's only when I'm like, it's like two in the morning and I'm like, oh, wait a second. I think I can arrange this Taylor Swift song or something. And then I like bring out the piano every time. and it's so much fun. Um, in high school, I played saxophone of all levels that I could try to dabble into. Um, and then I played piano and then I also uh, was in a steel drum band. So I oh, yeah. Steel band. yeah. <laughs> I remember That's that. Incredible. Mary, you lead, you lead such a fascinating life. Like, uh-huh. for real. You're a very interesting person. And you're Catholic. You have a lot to deal with. And I, and I, and I, and I, and I went to Catholic school and I was raised Catholic. And, like, yeah, if you couldn't tell by the name Mary Maxwell. Yeah, it's right out there for you. I mean, this kind of ties into it, but like meeting Michelle was is really based on musicals because I had heard about Michelle before I had like even interacted with her from somebody in our dorm because like context, we were all in the same dorm and all in the same scholars program. 
And then she was matched with me as my little <laughs> in this college program. And the first like paragraph no. of her intro email to me was, I am obsessed with Lay Miz. And I was like, oh, oh my God, God. So I have found bad. the one. No, you um, can't just tell people. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I feel like as your art scholar's mother, I can like embarrass you a little bit. Yeah, that's a that'll do it. <laughs> that's mortifying. Well, oh, now God. that we're uh, embarrassing the show, would you like to uh, <laughs> talk about your love of musicals? So, uh, in middle school, I did a, <laughs> I did show choir because <laughs> I oh, also God. went to Catholic school, um, and we didn't have a oh, choir wow. because that's what normal schools did. Um, we had a show choir, so I did that. And we ended up doing like a lot of songs for musicals. So I just like started listening to them and I really uh, liked how they sounded because they there's so much thought that goes into making like a, a cast recording, like the way it sounds, you know? Um, so I ended up doing like choir in high school because I really liked like big ensemble pieces in musicals and like different harmonies and stuff like that. They sounded so pretty. And I started doing theater around the same time, and that just like inevitably led into me looking more into musical theater. I would also like to say that I saw Wicked when I was like mm, nine, and like it sparked <laughs> a fire in a young sapphic heart. <laughs> For those who I, don't know, would you like to explain what sapphic is? Oh, <laughs> I didn't think about that. Sapphic refers to the poet Sappho, who was a lesbian in the Greek in times, I think. <laughs> Greek in classic. <laughs> anyway, she writes about her love of women. So people use that as a way to describe like things that are centered around like women loving other women. Michelle, I know that you loathe one Mr. Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> sir? Is he a sir? I don't know. Yes, I, don't he know. Is. I think he's he is, oh, unfortunately. Knight. Yes. Of a the knight, Queen's yes. realm. Because England is a fake country. It's already leaking. It's already leaking out. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. It just gets me, like, heated immediately. It does. Everything <laughs> about him and, like, anything he's associated with, it just, I get very riled up. <laughs> it's like visual misophonia. You know, when, like, a noise just fills you with rage? Ugh. Just like thoughts about. <laughs> I'm like shaking. I'm not even kidding. Like, it is. It is so true though. Like especially when we were living together, her <sighs> other roommate Joe would yeah. know if he just brought up cats. He would antagonize me on purpose. It, oh, <laughs> so much because this would happen, and it was so entertaining. So there's also a a photo album basically of Michelle giving the middle finger to Marquise of Weber shows. Okay. It's listen, we were in New York. Like <laughs> there were a bunch of Andrew Lloyd Weber shows running. Like I was not going to miss the opportunity. Like I need to show that shit to my grandchildren. <laughs> I have to pass down the family hatred. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll post those photos on the Patreon. <laughs> we have a Patreon. We'll get to that later. Okay. Is there something that he does that doesn't particularly speak to you that other musical artists have? Well, okay. So <laughs> the unfortunate thing about me is that I also really like <laughs> of the opera. I really <laughs> like Jesus Christ Superstar. Like I can even get down to memory. Like the man, he can make 
music. I got it. You he know, knows like, how to write a bop. He does. Cats and Starlight Express are truly unforgivable. And also the sequel to Phantom of the Opera, which is titled Love Never Dies, is just, it's, it's like it's slanderous. It makes it's literally so the sad. 50 Shades of Grey of like musical theater. Like you go into that show and you also like you have to remember that show is literally a fan fiction. Like it yeah, literally is based need to write more of Phantom of the Opera. Like what? I mean, I know they wanted money or whatever, but like, do you not have any artistic integrity? Yeah. Hor- have either of you seen it? Yes. It's, it's uh, I saw the horrifying. It is horrifying. Why the, the fuck only they move that shit to America? No one wants to see things set in America. The only redeeming quality of that show is the cast recording because I get to listen to Ramin sing to me. Other than that, it's unforgivable. Absolutely unforgivable. I mentioned Ramin and Michelle is having a moment. Literally, like, just there are heart eyes surrounding me right now. Like, I am in love with him. <laughs> I was just watching the 25th anniversary concert for Les Mis and... <sighs> He is oh that show. Oh so I prefer being under the stage lights with the eyeballs all on me, the attention, give me flowers at the end, you know, because I'm gay. But, and I know you two like to sit on different sides of the stage, different wings, if you will. <laughs> I was wondering if you wouldn't mind discussing what you like and also don't like about your role in theater. Uh, literally everything that Jay just said he, uh, that they enjoy, I hate <laughs> with a burning <laughs> passion. Yeah. So I do like stage manager things um, and dramaturgy, which are like probably the two things where you will never, ever have to see me on stage. And that is exactly how I want it. And I, I don't know. I really enjoy it. I got I kind of fell into it and I feel like every stage manager you talk to, they fell into it. Nobody like actively seeking it. I literally my high school theater director came up to me and was like, Hey, I heard you like organizing things. I was like, Yeah. And <laughs> oh, he was like, she Yeah, sensed a fire in young Mary. <laughs> well no. And he was like, Yeah, do you like you have you understand technical things? I'm like, Yeah, he was like yeah, I mean, if you want to take on this production manager role or whatever, whatever it is called at your high school, it's always stage manager, but they give it like a fancier title. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm so into it. And then I went to college and signed up for a show immediately thinking it was going to be the same. And then it was literally not. And I had a rude awakening and I still ended up loving it. So that was a good sign. And I don't know. It's I I like Stage management in particular, because dramaturgy is a whole other thing. But it is people management, and you get to know everybody in that cast and that crew. You really kind of have your foot in every door. So you get a lot of intel and a lot of info. And (laughs) it's fun knowing what's happening. It's also, there's a lot of, because like my focus really is education outside of the theater world. And and education is really just a fun like realm of psychology and stage management is very much so that and getting to communicate with people and like having an understanding of who you are as a person, how you can communicate with everybody else. And also uh, I like being in a situation where I don't have to have much of an ego and I can just be like, cool. I prob I'm not better than any of you people, but you have to listen to me. So, <laughs> Michelle. Wow, what a response that was. 
was a good response. <laughs> she kept nodding, Don't and feel, I was like, wow. Don't gas me up like this. Vibing right now. I was feeling it, you know? Also, I, like, have to constantly be moving. I don't know. I mean, I did theater more in high school. Like, now I just kind of like to listen to cast albums and, like, I don't know, read about musicals. <laughs> I also like to read, like, plays in general or... Uh, I have, like, multiple friends that, like, write pieces of theater, and they send them to me a lot, so I like to see what my friends are writing and creating. I don't know, like, there's so much to analyze when you are, like, consuming theater, that, like, that, like, kind of is good, like, good enough for me. Like, it's enough to spark, like, a really high interest in theater, because, like, every part of it has to be intentional. That's just the nature of theater, like, yeah. there's costuming, there's music, there's lighting, there's, like, the actors themselves and the choices that they make. There's the script, like, ugh. <sighs> and it's I also just... one of those, like, yes, everything is in particular, but if you mess it up, the audience doesn't know. I mean, unless it's, like, they've seen Phantom 87 times. Well, yeah, that's what, <laughs> like, every time you go, there's something new to observe, so you probably wouldn't even notice, mm-hmm. like, things being out of place. Unless you've seen it like a million times. Yeah. It is really, uh, I'm glad that you brought the intention thing in. Because mm-hmm. um, that is, it's one of those things about theater that I think that once you're involved in theater, you take for granted how literally everything you're doing is with intention. And then you start to analyze theater more. And you're like, wait a second. Damn right. That's exactly it's exhausting. the case. It's exhausting. <laughs> and I, so I'm in a English department Shakespeare class right now. And I am the only theater major in it. Everybody else is a English major. Only three out of the 15 people have any theater experience. And the professor had to spend a week explaining, like, you know, the background of theater, very general. But they were like, okay, unlike when I hand you a copy of The Great Gatsby, there are going to be things in this book that you are going to interpret that are not intentional. If I hand you a copy of Midsummer's Night Dream, Anything in that text, anything that is put on that stage is intentional and you're going to have to completely rewire your brain. And I realized in that moment, oh, my God, this is why I almost failed script analysis is because my brain did not put two and two together whatsoever. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just such a fascinating your brain is completely different in the world of theater. So anybody who says that you don't have to have like critical thought processes to be a theater major or be involved in theater, that's a load of no, BS. No, literally that's a whole analysis, other thing. like... Do it once. <laughs> theater, like, is one of the things I think that, like, takes up mo- the most of my brain power when I try to, like, dissect it, I guess. Because there's so much to comprehend. And, like, there's oh, so much... I mean, theater has such a big history and there's so many like references and things like that to consider. When you look at any piece of theater, you look at it like with the context of the period that it's in and like what was popular. I don't know. There's just so much to think about with it that like you have to have like a lot of critical thought, I feel like, to be able to first, especially for like older shows, because there's so much like that goes into it, like into the context of a script. Also, dramaturgy is like when... You get the, it's it's kind of doing the research of what we've been talking about and presenting it to the cast and crew. So they also kind of have that idea. Then we're all on the same page of what's going on. There, It's also usually like a page or so of notes to the audience in the playbill. So they mm-hmm. can also be on the same page. So we're all a connected unit. It's like a exactly. place, private little historian. 
It yeah. is. It's so it's such a fun little cute job. And also like the way it works, at least at Ohio State, and I know it's growing internationally, is like once you do dramaturgy on a show, you can send that to the theater research institute and it lives forever. So if you ever do that show again, you can just look it up and see this entire like realm of research that's been done. It's absolutely fascinating the things that people find out about these shows. That's a whole. This is gonna be a whole other episode <laughs> talking about the like theater. Research. Like the technical aspects of theater in general, like everything aside from like what actually goes out on like goes on on stage. There's like a whole world there to consider before you even get to the the one that the actors are portraying. You know. Oh yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. Okay. Well, you both just drink water, which was gonna be my next piece of advice. Drinking <laughs> strawberry aloe. I'm not drinking water. Your insides water. have a sunburn. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So I think it's an important topic to discuss the presence of diversity in the theatrical world. Mary, you are straight. Michelle, you are a lesbian, and you're both women identifying. Have either of your identities ever come into play in a situation, either as an observer or being a part of it? I know in one show I was in, a straight man said that he was the minority in theater. So I'm I'm not sure how common that kind of attitude is out there. Like I could speak from my experience, but let me know yours. I mean, so I did like most of the theater I did was in high school. And I mean, obviously there's sexism just soaked into every interaction that happens with people, especially in high school. But um, it wasn't anything that I super oppressive towards me specifically like now watching as an observer like when you look at old theater like it is very sexist and it's I mean it's often very homophobic Mm -hmm. it's kind of hard because like when you read old shows and you're like oh I really like the show like you're not endorsing necessarily the stuff that's in it and like the attitudes that people had towards like women and gay people at the time but like especially when it comes to like critical discussion about people are very easy to like push that aside and be like oh you know it doesn't matter like that was just how people were at the time Mm -hmm. and it kind of like silences I guess like actual queer discussion on it because like obviously we are able to understand that like there's context to the words that are written and like we have to decide for ourselves I think what is acceptable to still be able to like look at something as like a good piece of theater despite all the like sexist and homophobic tones it might have you know Oh, definitely. I also, we don't, if you don't want this in, we don't have to put it, but I was informed that your high school did hairspray. I was about to bring oh this up. God. And uh, seeing as you are, uh, you, all you are is not white. Yeah. You know? I, was gonna say, I, I, I believe a questionable casting choice was made with you, me, well, in this show. I'm glad you brought this up because I like completely forgot about it. I was going on awesome like fucking weird ass shit yeah when we did (laughs) we did hairspray my senior year of high school I literally wasn't even thinking about this I get mistaken for a lot of different ethnicities but I can safely say that African-American has never been one of them I'm I'm like a brown-skinned girl I'm Filipino I get like Mexican I get Native American I get all kinds of things but like Definitely, I could not pass as an African-American person. But of course, because I was not white, our fucking high school was like, well, 
They, they literally side-eye emojied me. <laughs> like, ended up being in the, like, colored... They ended up calling it, like, the colored ensemble, I think. Oh, my God. Oh my Ew. God. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, so... This is exactly why... Uh, see, I, I look at it, and I'm like, when high schools do... West Side Story and The Heights, Hairspray. Those are the three I'm going to go off of. Oh, my God. It's a school like, in my what? area did uh, West Side Story, and they literally did brown face. Like, it's straight. They had their students get tans. And, like, also, it's just, one, absolutely ridiculous. Like, and it, what makes it more ridiculous is that it's not the students that are making those decisions. There is a grown adult Mm-hmm. who yeah. is a teacher who is supposed to have some semblance of understanding of diversity, inclusion, and equity, who is looking at this show and going, yeah, that's fine. Well, it also leads to, like, I mean, in situations like that where students of color are like, hey, maybe this isn't, like, okay, it puts them at a disadvantage, even more so at a disadvantage, because a person in power is being like, no, it's fine. Exactly, 100%. And it's... It is just a way to continue ingraining the implicit biases that students are going to continue to see for years and years, especially if they continue in the world of theater. It's Mm. very similar to an obviously different, but just in theory, the common trend of casting plus size girls in In high school shows in comedic or side roles and never giving them a lead role because you get higher or actually totally correct this goes to all genders at that point you know you put these plus size you know students in these comedic inside roles they're going to continue to think and have that implicit bias that okay that's all i'm worthy of that's all i'm able to do yeah it's so 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 messed up and it's something that is so hard to unravel both like within yourself and also it's a lot of emotional energy that ends up having to be put out in that college academic theater world or in that community theater world. It's just ab- and it's absolutely teaching ridiculous. these kids that no one's going to take them seriously. One hundred percent. Yeah, I being like a person of size and also a feminine gay person, I'm either the funny one, old. Or the ladies' man who doesn't actually end up with the girl, you know, because I'm I can act suave, and like <laughs> part of that has I don't feel I can do dramatic roles because I haven't experienced it. Like I can mm-hmm. a comedy role, got it. I I can't be the leading lady, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely absolutely ridiculous. This is like a whole other thing of just. The way that theater is introduced to students can be so damaging, thanks to being able to license these shows so easily and them being so readily available. And, uh, yeah, I, Michelle, your experience with Hairspray has something that's always stuck with me. Like, it has yeah. always stuck with me. It's just absolutely ridiculous. It's just bizarre. Like, it, yeah, it should not have happened. Especially... I just, uh, knowing your school district, uh, I feel like a smarter decision could have been made. Like, and there literally wasn't. were so many other shows that they could, like, we, the the shows we had done before we did Hairspray were legit, like, they were good shows. I think Hairspray was one Mis of our before? worst productions. Yeah, so the, so the year before me did Les Mis, my freshman year we did Jekyll and Hyde, uh, my sophomore year we did Shrek the Musical, which 
was better than it had any right to be. And then my <laughs> third year, we did um, how to succeed in business without really trying, which like we did some pretty cool stuff with. But like I had multiple people tell me that Hairspray was the worst musical that they had seen for a while well, from us. When you pick a show like that and you are making it very clear that there is a, a power dynamic that you cannot unravel. It's going to be a difficult show to have any sort of artistic cohesion or any sort of feeling like you were being accepted on that stage as a student. Um, it's just very, very And as much as I love Hairspray, like, I don't know, to throw kids up there and, like, have them act like they are, like, actually, I don't know, in the middle of, like, these civil rights yeah, fights, no matter without- how campy... <laughs> Uh, like hairspray itself might be like it sounds like a weird message like oh you're like being oppressed like these are the white people they're coming for you (laughs) I have been doing a lot of research for something I'm doing about the the emotional toll heavy roles like that take on high school and college students because it is not healthy whatsoever to throw students into a classroom or into a show and immediately try to bring up any trauma they have for the sake of them being a good performer. Yeah, I feel like you, you not, like, throw kids into the roles of oppressors and, like, abusers just with, like, out abandon. Like, we just exactly. don't think twice about it. You have to, they need to have that context. And, and honestly, as important as that context is to give them, there's a lot of trauma that is involved in that context. Right. And there's a point where you have to consider whether or not that's, worth it why should my performance abilities or why should my actors abilities be rooted in their own personal trauma and their ability to tap into it that's a very good point and I think that you know you have Stanislavski and like all these methods that are so rooted in that process of and tapping into your emotional wells aka your trauma that we're moving past those I would hope it's fascinating to see how those have trickled down into, you know, K through 12 theater. It's just absurd. Like fuck method acting. Like, well, <laughs> have we ever have we ever seen somebody say that they're doing method acting for a major film that hasn't been an asshole? Like, I'm being so serious. I, I think it was Robert Pattinson that called out somebody for saying that they were doing method acting. And he was like, yeah, I'm not here for that because every time somebody says they're doing method acting, it's just, it just seems to be like an excuse to be an asshole. Well, and it just cycles back to the whole sexism thing. Like, okay, like this guy is method acting. He's going to be like a real dick to everyone, but it's fine because he's an artist. But like, I mean, fucking women don't have to sit there and tout about going, like being method actresses or whatever and being able to deliver like authentic performances anyway. Like they don't have to, I don't know. I feel like we can tap it. We when, when we get into layman's a little more, we can. What mm. I, this is? Like, oh my god, we have a perfect tap into that. All right, let's move on into the star of the show, Lepreshochab. So Les had its Broadway debut in 1987, and it is still going to this day. Well, at least since last March. <laughs> <laughs> so can we talk about why we think it has such a long impact? Because like. You know, it and Phantom are just never ending, and there's movies, and people do it all the time. I see Michelle has something in all caps underneath this, so if she would like to start. (laughs) I'll get to that in a second, but, like, I mean, because of its source material, I think also helps it 
endure as long as it has, but it's just a very good show. I don't know. It's very, and both of those shows are very essential to especially British theater, like London, the West End. Like they literally shape the culture of the West End. Um, 100%. And they're just like, they're on such a large grand scale. Lamest specifically manages to tell a very complex story in like beautiful, just musical form. Like the themes are so well thought out. It's just a very coherent and cohesive show. Because you said it's a good show. Do you think that is objectivity or subjectivity? <laughs> because if someone's just like, I didn't think it was good, does that make them like a bad person? I guess there's no accounting for taste. <laughs> like everyone's <laughs> going to have their own opinion on Les Mis or any show in particular. Like maybe you don't like shows that are sung through or maybe you don't like large scale orchestras or whatever. I don't know. I think if you looked at it from like a technical aspect, it's a very well written show. The yeah. lyrics are very good. I mean, I, I think I think it won Tony Awards. Oh, yeah. It, 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 it did a it did very well for itself. And like it is so impressive how well thought out the show is um the concepts alone like exactly the themes okay so the concept album came out in 1981 six years before it came to broadway i I highly recommend it there are some parts that sound very much like 70s disco oh 100 it but the the thing about that concept album that is so impressive is 95 percent of it stuck so these two men were like, we're going to make this concept album off of Les Mis. They wrote this musical and 95% of that stuck from the first recording to it ending up on the West End or Broadway. That's absolutely ridiculous. Then you also have the fact that they had to take the show and translate it from French to English. Mm-hmm. And they were still oh able God. to create the same story, the yeah. same intonation. Absolutely. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Listening to the French original cast album is just as gratifying for me as listening to the English album. Oh, yeah. I don't understand half of what they're saying. It's so well. So good. It's it's absolutely crazy. And the fact that they took this massive book, this Hmm. massive book, and they figured out, okay, we want to take these 12 stories or however many it is out and weave them together and create this story. And those, and they took it to Cameron McIntosh, and Cameron McIntosh was like, you know what? Yeah, and no major changes were made. That it just proves how well thought out and how cohesive the idea was for this show. And I think that there's something, if there's anything that humans like, it's when something makes sense, even if it's extremely convoluted and complicated. And there's something about yep. how the show is written how it is oftentimes staged and how it is, how it just translates to an audience that is understandable. It's weaved together. And it also gives performers with like very good talent, the like stage to perform. So like a lot of iconic people have been in productions of Les Mis. Like it's a platform for them to demonstrate their talent because it's such a well-written show. They have opportunities to give like, really really good performances like, i mean the I roles of les mis are iconic iconic for actors yeah, yeah i think it, if you ever get cast in one you're gonna brag about it for the rest of your mm-hmm. life <laughs> it won eight tonys yes. yeah yeah best musical Fair. score and book and also three there were three leading actor nominations <laughs> so, so. It, it essentially kind of high, 
uh, pulled a Hamilton in nominations, which, I mean, good for them. Yeah, I didn't know. If we're talking about, like, major actors being put in these roles. I didn't realize that Patti LuPone yeah. originated a role in the West End. Are you End. kidding? Are you I kidding me? No, I, it didn't. It There's didn't a Patti LuPone story about her being Fontaine where, like, she got in the habit of, because she's only there at the beginning and then at the end for, like, a second, she has, like, two and a half hours to kill. So she'd go next door to the bar um, and get drunk. And there was one performance where she just, like, lost track of time or whatever and they'd gotten to the finale. And they, they spoiler alert, they'd gotten to the part where Valjean dies and like Patty LuPone's or supposed to come in as Fontaine and sing this beautiful like or like beautiful thing carrying him to heaven I don't really know yeah. um, it was literally she wasn't there so he just sat there dead for like 12 beats <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean 12 measures not 12 beats it was like a long ass time before oh Fontaine God. finally made her entrance the sad thing is, like, that's just so Patty LaPone. Like, Excellent. even it's in 1984. Oh, my God. <laughs> Insanity. Insane. Yeah, and I think another part of it is, I, like, I talked about, like, how, like, it's very relatable. It, I mean, we can't relate to the French Revolution, <laughs> you know? We can't but relate can to that. We? But, we, exactly. It, the songs are so <laughs> universally written. And they they emulate these very specific moods that we have all felt at some point, whether it has been, oh, my teacher's pissing me off or, it's oh, we like, have an autocratic president. Like, wh- like whatever mood you want, you're going to find a song in this show. And it like, is the song of the oppressed. Like this show, I mean, source material aside, like it is very like fight against tyranny, like overcome. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It really isn't a show about overcoming. It is. And, like, I know that Michelle might disagree with me on this, but I – it is definitely a cheesy show because I I do have a pet peeve in musical theater with instant love. Like, it, it bothers oh. me to no end. But the way that this show does it is – it's very effective. While everything that happens in – the story is very stereotypical, like everything follows, all those tropes that we know and love. There's so much unknown. There's so much heavy emotion. And the music that in the themes that they have tied into all these emotions and all these beats throughout the show, it doesn't feel like you're watching, I don't know, like an 80 minute long Disney movie where you know that they're going to fall in love at the end. It, it drives you away from that formula, which is well, very and nice. that. I think has to do more with the source material itself because that's just how that moment was written. Marius immediately falls in love with Cosette. And it, that's, that's because like one of the major themes of the novel is like that Cosette is like the prince. I don't know the, she's like the light of the novel. Like she saves people. She saves Valjean from like being a sad man. She saves Marius from basically the barricades. Like she is seen as like the thing that ties the entire story together. She's um, not the miserable one. The rest no, of the No, she's, like, she's like the pure beacon throughout the entire plot. So for the musical to be able to have to get around that hurdle and just like instant love like that, I think they did a pretty good job. I don't think it's cheesy. I think it's adorable. They did oh, a fine and dandy job. 
speaking of source material and adaptations, how do we feel, let's, in general, how do we feel about adaptations? Like, can they really capture the essence of what's going on? Because there's always the thing when you hear books turning into a movie, it's always, oh, they're going to leave out the good parts. But, like, a movie and a musical are same-ish length, so I don't know why the, like, where the line is there. Yeah, Hmm. I, I, I... One, we come from a very interesting, we're all around the same age. We have, we are like the generation of adaptation. Like everything we have loved has been adapted in some way, shape or form. So I think we have a different perception of adaptation and we have a very different like barometer and how we judge it. Um, In terms of like, in general, let's talk like musical theater adaptations. They can work. It's just that, like, there is, like, this fine line between you have to be strategic about how much you're actually, like, directly putting on the stage and how much you're being creative about. There's two polar opposites. You have, like, Mamma Mia, right, which is a jukebox musical, but they've adapted this story very well. Or you have, like, Moulin Rouge, which literally took the entire, you know, theme of the movie, took the concept of the movie, but they just changed all the music so that it was modern like it was in the movie. Or you have a situation like SpongeBob where they were like, okay, we're just going to take the characters and make a <laughs> whole new story. Mm-hmm. And they all worked in their own, in their own way. So adaptations can work. It's just, it's very much so a balancing act. You just have to be very aware of what you're doing. And, and I think Les Mis just comes from an interesting era because the eighties were the beginning of Broadway really trying to play into the adaptation game for these mega musicals and we I don't think Broadway will ever stray away from doing these mega musical adaptations because they found a formula that works for money and oftentimes they find a way for it to have quote unquote artistic integrity. Mary would you like to explain what a mega musical is? Yeah, so Mega Musical is literally a musical that is just grandiose on all scales, whether it be cast size, choreography, budget, lighting, sound design, set. It's just going to be massive. And they grew into prominence literally in the 1980s on the West End and on Broadway, specifically with Phantom of the Opera and Les Mis, um, which all have, you know, a string attached to them, which is Cameron McIntosh, who could just be considered like the father of the mega musical. This man yeah. poured money into these things and they did extremely well. And if it weren't for the mega musical, I don't think Broadway would be what it was today because it's hard. I mean, like we're kind of in a weird era. I mean, obviously, take COVID out of the picture. We're in this weird era of Broadway where we have a lot of small scale and a lot a lot of mega, but we and and they both work extremely well. But yeah, mega musicals are uh, typically the ones that are easier to drag people who don't like musical theater to because <laughs> they're they're spectacle. Right, and I also think that if it is an adaptation, the person who doesn't really, I feel like someone going into it who has heard of it and maybe knows about the source material would go in and really enjoy it. But if you are a stan, you go in there <laughs> like, oh, this is gone. Oh, this is gone. So I, I think it does have a more generic appeal, but then at what cost? You know yeah. What I mean, and I, I, mean think- I feel like there are, there's a really, I think what I want to bring up is um, movie, or I mean, 
like the TV musicals that they've been doing for the past few years. Most of them have been like pretty hit or miss, but a couple of them have been actually legitimately very good. I'd say that Grease Live did a really good job of adapting a stage show for camera format. Like they got very meta with it at times, but it really worked because it kind of reminded you that like you're watching a piece of theater the way that a normal movie has a harder time doing. I forgot to consider TV adaptations. That's a whole other mess. Grease Live is always on my mind. Uh, Let's discuss the fact that Vanessa Hudgens didn't get nominated for an Emmy for her performance in Grease Live. What more do they want from her? Father died. Her father died and she still (laughs) killed it. I, I I don't think I will ever get over that. I remember watching that and being like, oh, my God, this is so good. She absolutely – because, like, it's not that hard to get nominated for the live, like, whatever it is. Like, yeah. Well, it's a weird category, and she didn't get nominated. Ugh. Or maybe she did get nominated and she didn't win. Either way, I'm mad. I'll put our fact checkers on the case. Okay, please do. <laughs> Justice for Vanessa Hudgens. Well... <laughs> Vanessa's been saying some things, but I do think that that performance was iconic. That's true. That's true. Um, Justice for Vanessa Hudgens pre-March 2020. How about that? We'll do that. Thank you so much for this probably part one. We're going to end it right here. and Part two will be out next week. Just want to say that... If you would like to connect with us, we are at Highbrow Theater on Twitter. We have a Patreon, so we can have exclusive behind-the-scenes content. You can participate in polls and suggestions. If you just search Patreon and Highbrow Theater, you will find it. Where can we find you guys? Uh, if you have any interest in uh, seeing my very millennial content, I am at Maria the Ginger on literally all social media platforms. Um, and I also am just Mary Maxwell on YouTube if you want some slow reverbed Taylor vibes. <laughs> Um, I have nothing to offer but my own thoughts. So my Twitter is um, at hey, it's underscore Mickey. That's M M I C K E Y. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, you can try and figure out which ones of my tweets were tweeted sober or high as fuck. Um, or my Tumblr, which is moonlighteponine.tumblr.com. <laughs> yeah, I <love> it. <laughs> it's so <Right>. easy. <laughs> Oh, thank you guys for coming on. I really had so much fun. And maybe we'll see you again. If the reviews are good. (laughs) If your Nielsen rating goes down, never again. I don't know what that means, but I hope I do numbers. (laughs) Okay, bye. 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 Bye.